Welcome to the holiday edition of Old School Guns. This is episode 90, episode 9-0. And uh, here we are. We're recording this on Christmas Eve 2020. And what a year 2020 has been. Um, rather than do any kind of silly recap, all I can say is the big enchilada presidential election did not go the way that we wanted to see it. My prediction was that Biden was was dead in the water in the primaries, but that was that was clearly he just had enough life and was just kind of middle of the road enough to be able to uh, snag the nomination. And unfortunately, through fair means and foul, got the uh, November election. I want to talk just real quick about I saw this thing from Arnold Schwarzenegger. I just usually call him just Schwarzenegger, just kind of abbreviate a little bit. Arnold Schwarzenegger is a pig, okay? He is a crappy human being on, on a lot of levels, a lot of levels. Um, he was a fake Republican governor. He was, he's not even a very good actor. Uh, he's, there are all kinds of bad rumors about him. His behavior on the set, you know, with you know, fondling women and all kinds of things. The worst thing was he, he put a deal saying, well, these banana Republicans better just learn to, you know, accept the the uh, outcome of the election. And I'm sitting there going, well, that's pretty fat coming from, coming from Arnold. First of all, Arnold, how's your housekeeper doing? I mean, here's a guy, you know, just, just to set the background of, here's a guy who's telling other people what to do. Here's a guy who, when his wife was pregnant, also managed to get his housekeeper pregnant, and the wife only caught on when the kids started growing up and started looking like Arnold, you know, the same gap in the teeth and <laughs> the same same facial features. I mean, come on. I mean, you know, if you wrote if you wrote a novel or a story where that happened, Nobody, nobody would believe it, but uh, truth is stranger than fiction. But he's saying, calling people banana Republicans. He's the biggest banana Republican there is. Um, he's an absolute fraud as a human being. He's not a nice guy. He's not a good father. He certainly wasn't a good husband. He isn't a good anything, wasn't a good governor, wasn't a good Republican. And he's telling other people what to do. But to quote the, uh, what was it, Terminator 2, you know, the Sarah Connor line of, you know, you know, to paraphrase it, you're the, Arnold, you're the one living in an effing dream because, you know, we know what happened. I mean, we know what happened. He's the one living in a dream if he thinks this was a fair election. But that's just the uh, that's just the fun of of uh, you know Arnold Schwarzenegger and all these other people like Hunter Biden. There's an honest guy kicked out of the Navy for smoking dope after they go through all kinds of hoops to get him in there. You know that's you know can't even didn't even make it through his little ba- you know JAG officer basic training or whatever that nonsense is that that they go through. So there he is. <clears throat> and now they're finding out that, gee, he got $3.5 million from the wife of the mayor of Moscow. I mean, how does that happen? How, how does that happen in any world? How does that happen honestly? And the answer is it can't happen honestly. It, you know, I don't care how well connected you are. The, you know, hey, the wife of the mayor of Paris, France, wants to give you $3 million and expect nothing in return. Then there's all the Chinese deals. You know, this guy's got millions of dollars. 
that he basically bankrolled from influence peddling with his old man. Old Sleepy Joe, you know, is as crooked as they come. But what do you expect? Anybody who's been in the Senate and, and government for 47 years is a natural, you know, like they had the movie Natural Born Killers. Well, these are natural born crooks. And it's amazing. It's amazing how some of these people who go in to, uh, um, you know, politics as fairly modest middle class people come out of it as uh, very wealthy multi-multi-millionaires. That doesn't happen on $186,000 a year where you have to rent like an apartment in Washington as well as maintain your residence back home and, and all the rest of this. This is the swamp. This is what has been reelected. And this is why we need to be on guard for the next four years. And I'll be talking about that a little bit later. You know, the swamp has, we had a four-year respite where somebody was at least doing something against the swamp. Now they're back in charge. So that's a, that's a little bit on the politics, but let's talk about politics in another vein. And, and, you know, a lot of people don't understand what is the essence of gun control? Why is gun control even an issue today? I mean, most people can read the Second Amendment. We now have court cases that say it's an individual right. Why is there any controversy at all? And the answer is there was no gun control other than maybe city ordinances saying you couldn't carry a, a gun in public. And those were in the West as well as in the East. The most infamous being the Sullivan Act in New York City. And, you know, then there are places like, you know, some of these fake heroes of the Old West, you know, Wyatt Earp, you know, won't let people carry guns. As far as I'm concerned, that's a gun controller there. And Wyatt Earp has never been anybody, you know, here he, here he is, was never actually a sheriff or marshal of anything. He, um, what else about Wyatt Earp is bad? Oh, well, his wife was a prostitute. That's that's pretty bad. He was also a horse thief when he was younger. So I'm not a real big Wyatt Earp guy, and I don't like gun control in any real form. I don't like it in any form. But to, to give it a short story, the, the essence of gun control really started after the First World War. And, you know, something new came out. They'd been around for a while, but machine guns were, were terrifying. I mean, the soldiers who came back told terrifying stories about, you know, machine guns sweeping the, you know, and mowing people down in, in droves. Machine guns were scary, uh, just, the, just the lore attached with them. Uh, they, they weren't anything that, was, that really proliferated in society. Um, during Prohibition, you know, they got, they got a little bit of notoriety. But it was really kind of with the motor bandits, you know, and, and, you know, Dillinger and all the rest, you know, the Thompson was at the forefront. And that was that was seen, even though it was m many more by a hundredfold or a thousandfold were used by law enforcement rather than criminals. You know, it got a bad rap. It was the Chicago typewriter, you know, a chopper, you know, and, and it basically it basically was the you know identified as the gangster gun it was terrifying when you attach it to all of this lore from the first world war how effective machine guns were even though yes it was a submachine gun it was a different thing but the people back then didn't draw a lot of distinctions much the same way people now have a hard time drawing the distinction between semi-automatic and fully automatic so you can you can see how that could 
could all get misconstrued and, and uh, all basically confused and conflated. So in 1934, uh, they passed the law. And the law basically covered a lot of different things. Okay, covered fully automatic weapons, had to go into a registry, the end that we now know as the NFA, a then very onerous $200 tax. And the $200 tax, uh, you know, that'd buy you at least half a car back then. It would buy you, certainly buy you a used car. It would certainly buy you a nice used car. So you could say, you know, I, I don't know what the exact exact uh, inflationary figures are, but go look what a nice used car costs, and you can see that's what $200 would, would buy you back then. So that was a pretty onerous tax. Um, I argue that it's unconstitutional because you can't tax a right, just like you can't have a poll tax. But anyway, they did this anyway. So they, they made a few other things illegal too. Uh, sold off shotguns. Why? I have no idea. Other than they thought gangsters would use these, that they were somehow concealable. And, you know, the same thing they use against assault rifles this these days. You know, it's like some death rate, like instant death if somebody has a sold-off shotgun. They also made silencers an NFA item. Um, you know, and that... A lot of that was that was not really directed at crime, although you know you could you could say I'm sure they they justified it that way. A lot of that was going after poachers because if you're a poacher and poacher was big back in the depression, it was super big because you know hey if you can go shoot a deer and get you know a couple of months worth of meat out of it, um, that's that's a pretty good deal that that save you a lot of money when you don't have money to spend. Um, that was always the impetus behind poaching was was basically they were foraging they were out there um, shooting shooting animals out of season or shooting the wrong kind of animal and you know eating it because they were hungry and they wanted to stop poaching so silencers uh, really fit into that there's no no real it's that most silencers are very in my opinion overrated especially on rifles they're they're uh, not nearly as effective as people would like to think and so they made these things, you know, they created the NFA, made all this illegal, and, and basically, you know, the country kind of moved on. Um, fully automatic weapons were never popular with the general public. Um, outside, I'm sure there were some enthusiasts that owned them, but other than that, it was mostly law enforcement, you know, and they were basically exempt from it. And, and you know, the criminals, it was never as widespread as you would believe. But it was, they were used, so that, that kind of dried up. And the country moved on. Uh, had the World War comes literally a few years later, you know. <laughs> so after the war, hey, there's another push for gun control. That's because millions of men trained to kill with guns were coming back and being demobilized. Um, it, it never went anywhere. The one after the war never went anywhere. But it, it was there nonetheless. And it was the same kind of fear they had. The reason they created the VA, VA loans and VA education and all that was unemployed soldiers uh, constitute a threat to a government because, hey, they're trained, they're young, uh, they're, probably, they're probably pissed off and 
you know, if they don't have anything to do, they'll start a revolution. And I mean, that was a very real fear. Nobody knew what the post-war economy would look like. A lot of people thought we'd go back into a depression. And if that happened and you have millions of unemployed soldiers who are trained uh, and know how to know how to shoot, know how to kill, that was kind of a frightening thing. So there was a gun control push. It never went anywhere. And, and of course, as the economy started to pick up and just explode in the late 40s and in the 1950s that that fear just dried up and went away so that was the that was the the story up till the early 1960s and then we had high profile assassinations you know obviously JFK Martin Luther King Robert F Kennedy uh, there were even uh, I think it was a little later George Wallace was shot I mean it, it didn't really matter who's the person was or their ideology but there was a huge huge push for gun control and the gun control act of 1968 came in and and basically it kind of disallowed mail order sales uh you know it kind of adjusted the length of barrels did a few other things certain handguns couldn't be imported because of size it did it, it you know it had a lot of technical features in it many of which have been have been gutted by now which is nice but by two ways um either they figured a way around the import laws you know put an adjustable sight on it now it's a sport pistol or they've just uh like in the case of the walther ppk they just kind of make it here now so that's been kind of the uh the way around the import bans and the executive orders that have that have stopped importation of certain types of guns well okay we'll just make them here and guess what we can make them as good as anybody else so but that was 1968 uh that started to get that started to get gutted in 1986 when they did i forget what they call it i want to call it the firearm owners protection act but that may be that may be wrong um but one but one of the aspects of that was they closed adding things to the NFA, closed the machine gun loophole, which passed on a specious and spurious uh, um, voice vote at the end. It never should have been. They, Reagan should have never signed it. He should have kicked it back to him. But, you know, it, it is what it is. The most of it was, was very, very good. Some of it was very, very bad. And then the last piece of firearms legislation, major piece, was... 1993 the Clinton-Feinstein assault weapons ban and that that did significant damage to like military style weapons you know you couldn't have certain features you could not make new high cap magazines although you could still kind of import them and the you know the only the only saving grace of that law was it had a 10-year sunset clause and so it went away in 2003 and kind of put us where we are today where we have a lot of um, a lot of different options out there in the market the the bad thing that came out of the 1993 ban was then a bunch of states decided that they wouldn't just live with the federal laws that they would have more restrictive laws uh, California Massachusetts New York the usual suspects are there you know garbage states that now are overrun with drugs and homelessness and everything else you know they're the ones that decided to have more restrictive gun control and and that's why when people whenever there's a a crime and they link a gun to it in one of those places it's like oh couldn't happen in california they have all these laws against it you know they've they have 
it can't happen there. And the same thing with New York, same thing with the rest of them. So you have all this. Now, what what is the goal? Why do why beyond 1968 was there a push for uh, gun control? And the, and the answer is, and I've talked about this before, there are people in this country who feel, and, and you see it now, they're, they're open about it now, that you, because of your race, have probably benefited from, from unduly benefited from privilege. So if, if you're a white person, you've you've got this there's this big magical you know pile of privilege in your backyard and you can go grab some of it whenever you need to get ahead of of the poor people of color now this is all trash you know go to the go to the ozarks go to the appalachians go to any place where you see poor people and you see poor people of all races but you can see poor white people poor black people poor hispanic people you know, there is no such thing as just automatic skin color privilege. They would like to say there is, but in point of fact, there is not. But what goes on with that is, if you've been a worker and you've you've worked for a living for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, um, you've accrued a few things. You probably have a, a home. You probably have a couple of cars. You probably have, you know, some sort of a nest egg for retirement, something going on there that's, that's uh, really going well for you. And they don't think you deserve that. They want to take it through taxation. And they also believe that there are direct reparations owed for slavery, a labor system which ended over 150 years ago. And people have a right to come take that. And one of the, one of the obstacles to you being a complete victim to all this is your right to keep and bear arms and your right to defend yourself. And, and I, I talk about it every podcast, but the St. Louis couple, hey, you know, there you go. If you want a microcosm of what it is, just watch that tape. You know, these big mouths who broke down the gate were coming in there. You know, who knows what they would have done if that couple had just cowered in their house or had come out with, you know, pepper spray or something. They're not going to defend it. But an AR-15 with a 30-round magazine and we don't even know if the magazine was fully loaded or not. You know, I bet you, I bet you that was not fully loaded. Um, just a guess on my part. But they thought it was. The, the bad people thought it was. And you notice they didn't come onto that property. And, you know, and that's seen as a big problem. Uh, we've talked about all the, you know, the evil Democratic supporter kind of Soros people, you know, down to their down to their uh, um, execution um, teams that include things like the, you know, the Unitarian Church and all these other criminal organizations that are out there. Um, they don't like seeing that. They don't like the fact you can defend yourself. And, you know, if you get beaten up by an unruly crowd of what they see as predominant minorities, they, they, they could care less. That's You deserve that. And, and the answer that I have to that is none of us deserve that. And it also leaves behind, you know, the people who, since this is not a straight race issue, there are middle class black people who would get victimized too. And they just turn their back on that, that like that doesn't exist. They obviously did not see the white Black Lives Matter supporters 
screaming obscenities into the faces of black policemen, you know, and, and to, to know how kind of upside down and weird all this is and that it's all ideological. It's not racial. It's all ideological. But their plan is to leave you defenseless in front of people who can who can just beat the snot out of you and take whatever they want. And, you know, most people in America will never submit to that. They'll never submit to that. And then you get the, you know, kind of the blowhards who say, well, I'll just go, we'll fight them. It'll be a civil war. We'll fight them. Well, dude, if you want to fight the civil war against this, that's fine. But you probably should start in your own town and in your own neighborhood. See what are in the textbooks that they're teaching in your local schools. You know, school board elections matter. I mean, if they're teaching that all the founding fathers were a bunch of rich slave owners that didn't want to pay taxes, um, you know, you're not going to have a bunch of solid citizens that way. You know, if they don't even teach basically how the court system works, just basically, and you see that all the time. You see that in some of these shootings where it's like, well, this police officer shot an unarmed black man. Well, it needs to be investigated, and it needs to be the facts probably need to be brought up to a grand jury and all the you know there's a whole process of that but instead they're like well he needs to be charged and arrested right now it's like well no we haven't gone through the legal process we haven't gone through due process and people don't even understand if you don't understand due process how can you function in society and and the answer is that's why they don't function very well and when you see people in some of these communities who use these types of things as an excuse and it's what it is an excuse to loot and burn um, you know how much credibility does that have I mean they're protesting a shooting but they decide that they're gonna loot and burn and we have the media the same media that is that that uh, attacked Trump 90 plus percent of the time you know, the, 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 the greatest one was that one doofus with the buildings burning behind him saying, well, it was largely peaceful. Uh, I saw a meme saying, you know, it goes December 7th, 1941. The Japanese flyover of Pearl Harbor was largely peaceful. You know, I mean, it's the same kind of thing. What are they really telling us? But their goal is to have you defenseless in front of their social change agenda and the people who are trying to execute it they're trying to they're trying to put you in front of that and it's not a very it's not a very good place to be it's not a very good place to be um, you've seen these defenseless people get pulled out of their cars and beaten just because of of their race you've seen all this I mean it's on the TV you can look it up it's there that's what gun control is Gun control is putting you in harm's way. And it's putting everybody you know, all of your family, all of your friends, in harm's way. It's putting everything you've spent a lifetime building in harm's way. So that is the essence of gun control. And that is the essence of why we have to just fight the next four years. And it's going to start in Georgia. January 5th is going to be here soon and there's going to be a runoff election 
if you got any extra cash, I know it's tough this time of year, send it to Purdue and Loeffler. It's only if we can just get those two seats, we're going to be in a lot better shape than uh, if we don't get them. Okay, let's talk about something else. There was a YouTube video that our friend of the podcast sent me, which, I'll be blunt, I thought was the biggest piece of whining garbage I'd ever seen. And it was the guy, I forget his name, he was the president of CCI, oh God, Spear, Remington Ammunition, Federal, and, and if you're a, if you're a gun person, you've probably have seen this. And he says, "I'm tired of the hate mail. I'm tired of this. You know, blah blah blah. We're making ammunition as much as we can, as fast as we can. We got problems. You know, we got to train people. We had COVID. We got to get the material. I mean, every whining excuse you can imagine. And you know, there's all these new gun owners, and if seven million of them, and if each one of them gets a hundred rounds, that's seven hundred million rounds of ammo that we got to make. And you know, I all I can say is like, number one, quit your whining. The only reason you're getting hate mail and people are accusing you of stashing this stuff into secret warehouses and everything else is because you're not getting your product to the consumer. Now, I don't know how you're going to do that, but you better figure out a way. The other thing that came to my mind was, you know, when I don't keep track of all the conglomerates that really control the shooting industry... But when one company has Remington Ammunition, which is big, which is big, Federal, which is big, very big, um, Remington, Federal, CCI, Spear, when that's all under one company, I'm, I'm sitting there going, you know, there isn't real impetus. It's not like they're competing against each other. They're not. If these were kind of separate companies, They'd be saying, hey, I want to gain more market share. I need to outcompete my competition rather than, oh, my competition is just another brand that's that's out there that we own. It's just more, it's just a different label we print on the box. So I'm, I'm thinking that if these things were actually a little more diverse, a little more, you know, kind of separate, smaller companies that were out there and, you know, maybe they would be a lot more flexible. Maybe they can respond better because we all know large companies don't respond quickly. There's just too much bureaucracy and, and stuff. But if you've got a smaller company, then you can probably make the decision, hey, we need to hire four more guys. Boom. Hey, we need to work a swing shift in addition to to the other shift, we the, the day shift we work. Or we need a night shift. You know, whatever it is. I think that we would probably find a lot better. We find that production would actually increase rather than decrease. So I, I wasn't impressed by that. I'm sitting there going, if you're making all this ammo, where is it? I mean, every once in a while we see a shipment comes to a gun store here and there and it kind of gets bought up. And, you know, and the price is being outrageous. That's the other side of this coin is, Okay, if your costs have not changed, why has the cost to me basically exploded? I mean, you're looking what used to be a $200 case in 9mm is now, let's see, it is now what, $600? 
you know it's three times the cost three times really um, okay there's a shortage there is such a thing as supply and demand but there's also such a thing as price gouging and it's 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 out there and it's out there and all of a sudden there are no primers anywhere and and of course the the excuse is and we've talked about this before is that hey it's all going to new ammo production okay that'd be fine if there was new ammo and if in fact if in fact it was you know hitting the shelves and we were actually seeing it <laughs> but it seems like there's no primers there's not really a whole lot of ammunition out there and uh, one of the things that surprises me is I think you know you can still find you know some of the Warsaw Pact you know the old Comblock calibers some of that is coming into the country and and you know a few of these guys still have it in stock that's a good thing but like seven you know some of these other calibers are just they've dried up and gone and and um, we'll talk about this but that video is very very disturbing to me I I thought that that was whining I mean um, you know, we we have an ammunition industry, and it should be cranking it out. We should be cranking it out. This hurts. This really hurts the gun culture. It hurts the shooting sports. It's hurting it. And it's, it's easier to buy guns now than it is ammo. I mean, I go into gun shops, and yeah, granted, they're not as stocked the way they were, but uh, at least there's some choices in there. And I'll talk about some. I actually bought a gun here recently. Um, they're they're out there, but there's no ammo. You know, <laughs> they don't have any ammo to sell you, but they can sell you a gun. And how many of these new shooters cannot have bought a gun, maybe a, a box of ammo, twenty or fifty rounds, and they can't get any more? So, do you think they're do you think they're all excited about this? They're probably saying, "What did I spend this money on?" you know this is this is this is bogus so anyway it certainly won't help boost any competition numbers or anything else it's just going to um, just going to depress that and I guess if you just wanna you know squirrel onto a few boxes buy a gun and squirrel onto a few boxes and wait for the world to end I guess it's okay but for the shooting sports it is very very bad okay braces and SBRs um, you know, this, this is, we've been talking about this last couple of podcasts, you know, they're, they're, they would like to come after the braces, but, you know, watching some of the ATF stuff, I think they put out a letter and they just retracted it. Um, the problem is they've let the cat out of the bag. The genie's out of the bottle. And apparently there's like four or 5 million of these braces out there. And guess what? There's no crime wave. There's nothing that's showing that this is any kind of a danger to the public. They're just out there. Uh, they're not the preferred weapons in crime or anything else. And it's for the reasons that we all would expect. Number one, they're very expensive. You know, a, a large frame pistol with a brace is expensive. Number two, it's not concealable. I mean, it's just not a a weapon that you can carry on you routinely, which is what criminals want. You know, they they want something very concealable, not something that yeah they have to wander around in the middle of summer with an overcoat on to, to hide the thing. You know, that's 
in the winter time you could probably get away with it a lot better than in the summer but in the three seasons out of the year you're you have a hard time with these things you have a hard time concealing them the other thing is they require some expertise to deploy and shoot relatively well they require some practice a lot of these things your street criminals don't invest in so um you know these are not the preferred weapons of criminals the same as you know the evil assault rifles are not um, they have been used in some high profile shootings AR-15s but other than that um, blunt objects by far kill more people than rifles do and I would assume that these braced pistols are probably way down the list way down the list so the you know the SBR and the brace are out there and since we have four million of these braced pistols out there is there still an argument that the SBRs need to be regulated obviously four to five million braced pistols which are which the ATF is kind of trying to claim well these are SBRs that are unregistered well so what obviously they're not a problem so then therefore why are we even registering SBRs SBRs should be off it too you know I mean no one no one is going to take a Thompson semi-automatic carbine that looks like a Thompson submachine gun, but it's not. It's a semi-automatic carbine with the 10.5-inch barrel and, and carry that around all day. thing weighs a ton. It's just not going to happen. So it's not a, it's not a threat to public safety either. So therefore, why are we regulating them? Why do we regulate any of those? It's amazing. And I pointed out in the last podcast that in England, where handguns are illegal, uh, short-barreled rifles aren't even looked at because people say, well, it's got this clunky stock on it. Of course, it's not going to be as concealable or as usable as a handgun, so who cares? Yeah, you can put a 10-inch barrel on your uh, um, and feed it with a 9-millimeter uh, Browning high power magazine for this little bolt gun you just made. Of course you can. Who cares? And that's what, that's what. So there, they're encouraging it. Here we prohibit it and try to try to uh, control it. But it's too many. They're gone. It's too many. So we'll see what happens. But braces and SBRs. The argument to regulate braced large framed pistols. It just it's not ringing true they're already out there and they're not a problem and if they're not a problem SBRs won't be a problem okay uh, let me see oh I got one thing here I, you ever see the Charlton Heston movie about I think it's Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel called the agony and the ecstasy well I experienced that uh, for a variety of reasons I bought two Sig Sauer P210 target handguns. Okay. Um, and I have to tell you, that is a first-rate quality piece of equipment. Really, it shoots like a laser. I mean, it shoots, it shoots awesomely. Unfortunately, one of the two, <laughs> before we even got very far with it, the front sight fell off. So if you've ever had that happen, you realize how aggravating that really is. And when you pay the kind of money that you pay for a SIG P210 target, that is not something that you foresee happening. That, that really comes out of left field. And 
you know, I was very disappointed with that. That to me shows a lack of quality in the final inspection. That's what that shows because any process can momentarily fail. Okay, where obviously whoever put the site on did not do it correctly, and you catch those things through quality inspections at every every point, and and it's a very it's very disappointing that that did not get caught. So uh, the one pistol extremely happy with, and think it's going to be great and going to use it in competition and everything else. The second pistol I'm sure will be just as great. I mean it's. It's the equal in every conceivable way of the first one, except the front sight fell off. And so that's on the way back to SIG to, to get fixed. And, you know, that's the other thing. Um, okay, I get three to four weeks to do that. I get that. But, you know, I kind of paid premium money for their flagship product. I would think, I would think that that should go to the head of the line. I mean, this isn't, this isn't a... $600, you know, pistol that the plastic sight fell off of or 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 something else. This is the flagship line of their handgun. This is the best handgun, quote unquote, they make. The, you know, highest quality handgun they make. So, I would think it would it would actually merit some special treatment. So, we'll see how that goes and uh I'll let you know when it returns how how if it's the equal of the first one, but I'm sure it will be because uh, in every other way the two pistols are identical okay now here's my favorite part of the podcast this is questions and answers and we got some questions okay the first one is did you see the american rifleman article on nine millimeter 1911 pistols and the answer is yes i kind of just got here a couple days ago and i did i did look at it um doesn't really change my opinion any um i just think this is kind of a flavor of the month this is like you know this is goofy grape kool-aid you know it's it's the flavor of the month a year from now they're not going to be talking about nine millimeter 1911s other than somebody saying why would you want why would you want a gun that bulky and heavy for not for nine millimeter you don't need it you know that's what you're going to hear but I'm, I'm sure they're nice guns, and especially the, the, the models they profiled were all higher-end things. And so I'm, I'm sure they're going to be well. Now, you're talking to a guy who owns a SIG P210 Target, so 9mm target pistols are not, or service pistols, are not unknown to me. I mean, that's, to me, they're kind of the, that's kind of the standard. So it's logical that you would have a 9mm uh, 1911. I, I still think, though, that to me, the 1911 is always greater than the sum of its parts and part of that greatness is the 45 ACP cartridge um, so I'm not really attracted to 1911 uh, 9mm um, I like 38 Super better I think they're very cool and I think that's a great cartridge I think it should be out more I think it should actually be out more um, in different guns I'd love to see a Glock 38 Super now you know what I'm not a Glocker and I don't own a Glock a Glock 38 Super would really pique my interest. I don't know if I'd buy it, but I would certainly, I'd certainly look at it and go, "Whoa, that's very cool." So I like 38 Super better than nine. I, I do have to say though that, and I hope our friend of the podcast, I think he agrees. 
you know, to me, why would you go with a 9mm 1911 when you can get the Browning High Power, which is such an awesome, awesome gun and has many 1911-like features and and really uh, is very well suited to the 9mm cartridge. And I, I take that, uh, and I know he's with me on this too, you take that a step farther and go to the Star BM or the Star BKM. Uh, very cool guns. Very, very cool. Um, and they're they're 1911 like enough that uh, that they'll definitely meet the bill. So I did see it. I do think it's kind of the flavor of the month, and we'll see how far it goes. I just don't see it's going to go go all that far. One of the things that I find very very funny, and it was in the same article. I it's the Walther. What is it? The Q4 that they have. I guess they're bringing it out in the steel frame because they're they're giving up on the polymer frame. I guess they're on some level they're giving up on the polymer frame and they realize a steel frame pistol is better. It started with the I think it was the Q4 target came out and it had a polymer lower and it had the target upper with you know longer barrel adjustable sights and a few other features never really interested me that much. And then they came out with the steel frame version and I thought at the time I said and you can actually buy the uh, god was it CDNN or somebody had the uh, started getting the polymer frame versions and I kept thinking to myself hey I bet they found out these are dogs I bet they found out they did not live up to expectations probably still nice probably still shoot pretty well and everything but they did they obviously did not live up to expectations or they would never have brought out a steel frame version just why would you why would you and the only reason is because you want a heavier gun well maybe you know that's maybe that's part of it but the biggest part is it, it obviously is easier to accurize and stays accurate and it is more accurate so yeah that is the very interesting part of that the walther q4 steel frame and it's the duty gun version now is uh is out in steel frame so very cool that brings me to the second question, which I moved up. The deal, what do you think of 9mm as a target cartridge? Well, in spite of the fact I'm a 45 ACP guy, and I love 45 ACP, and I think I've done my best shooting with 45 ACP handguns when it comes to centerfire. Um, and that's a, six, a Smith & Wesson Model 625, and then a, a 1911 that I, I had kind of put together for me for for target for not really for any specific reason although i may use it in competition but i i do uh, really like it for its accuracy but uh saying that nine millimeter i've always i've always accepted nine millimeter as a kind of a target cartridge because when i was stationed in germany that's what the germans used and in fact that's where i first saw the uh, p210 um and, and it had a reputation and it had a reputation as a great uh, shooting gun and they would use it in their competitions over there and the other side of the coin was uh, they kind of used standard ammo there there was no real nine millimeter match ammo and I don't think there's really anything there's a lot of nine millimeter defense ammo but there's no real nine millimeter match ammo made here in the states uh, you know that's that's something that um, when they get done feeling sorry for themselves, some of the ammo manufacturers might want to look at is a 
a match grade round that's not that uses a bullet that's designed for accuracy and not necessarily for defense. Completely on board with nine millimeter as a target cartridge. You know, as as it has become like 38 special. It is the 38 special of the 2020s. You know, it's it's a cartridge that's doing a little bit of everything. I mean, it's the standard military cartridge. It's the standard pistol cartridge. If you go in, you see more 9mm than anything else. It's being produced more in different kind of guns than anything else. It's the police cartridge. It's the military cartridge. It's the concealed carry cartridge of choice for autoloaders. Uh, we have all of it has all of this going for it and uh, it's going to become the cartridge of choice for target shooters you know for people who are shooting traditional target um, competition because it already is the uh, caliber of choice for people doing action shooting and everything else I mean I know USPSA still has the major caliber deal blah 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 they got all that but I think almost everybody who's using an auto pistol is coming with nine millimeter and and part of that has been just the ammo cost I mean just when you get 50 rounds of tall ammo in the good old days for less than 10 bucks what were they nine bucks a box hey you gotta you gotta go with it you know I mean if you want to practice a lot live fire that's a way to do it and that stuff is actually you know decent ammo for for what it is now whether it'll cut it for some of the more formalized target shooting bullseye what we used to call bullseye shooting now they call precision pistol shooting uh, I don't know uh, we'll see but uh, I have a funny feeling that there's a there's gonna be a growing market for precision pistol nine millimeter loads so any small manufacturer out there if I were Fort Scott munitions I'd add that to my line that way you got something that no one else is doing you know that's what I would do okay and hey here's another question I put in here that's uh, uh, the, what do you think of the custom hand loading reloading business okay uh, I assume that 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 came to me blah, 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 about a week ago yeah about a week ago a uh, guy thinking about getting into it and he was researching you know these machines and everything and uh, you know I, I'll be honest with you I did not I don't really give my advice but I, I think there's a you know if you can get primers if you can get primers I think if you can start a little cottage business of hand loading or reloading uh, that's that's pretty cool now I don't know what product liability insurance costs um, I do know that to get a a license to do that from the BATFE is about 200 bucks and I don't know how long it's good for I'd assume it's good for you know a couple of years maybe it's even a one-time deal I don't know but uh, anyway um, I think that you could make a good business if I were doing it if I were doing it because this question was kind of asked of me if I were doing it I'd do two things I'd do nine millimeter and five five six fifty five grain five five six loaded to you know about 3100 feet per second that's what I would that's what I would do and nine millimeter would be 124 grain bullet you know kind of loaded to near the NATO spec depending on what kind of bullets I had had you know I I have found that those plated bullets you know they're as good as FMJ for not 
you know, leading the barrel. So I don't know about powder coated bullets, but I would be, I wouldn't be opposed to that. Anything that could keep the price low, you keep the quality high it's, and the price low and you're going to make tons. If you were, if you were set up in that today, think of, think of the tons of cash you'd be making. You know, if you had a hundred thousand primers, if you had a hundred thousand rounds of ammunition, that means you could sell 100 thousand round cases and they're getting 600 and let's say that for those let's say you undercut them yeah let's say you undercut them and sell it for 350 that's three hundred fifty thousand dollars that's a lot of money now you know there's obviously expenses and and things like that but and and the the business the business geniuses the mbas can do all the do all the calculations i can do it too but I don't really do that because I'm not going to do that business. But, you know, and, and you figure that, you know, that's a hundred, a hundred cases of a thousand rounds is not that much. You figure that's probably, is that a month? You could crank that out in a month. Yeah, you could crank out some. Now, they, they have to get some other equipment too, not just some of these fancy loading machines but they also have to get sorters you know because you don't want a 380 somehow <laughs> you know it would only take 50 or 60 or 100 380s getting mixed up in your brass to cause all kinds of problems but they do have these sorters that'll kick out like if you have a let's say you have nine millimeter largo my favorite okay you have those and 380s uh, you have 10,000 rounds of nine millimeter brass but somehow mixed in there are 200 rounds of 380s and 100 rounds of 9mm Largo or 38 Super or something like that. They have these things. You pour it in and they have these big rotary deals and they will kick out the uh, the 380s, the, the ones that are too short and the ones that are too long. They'll kick those right out. So there you go. I mean, that's... And then you have a, a, you know, a big pile of pure brass that you can you know, start putting through the uh, loading process. So I think it'd be very cool. Uh, I don't know. It it would be something that, depending on what your daytime job is, could you run something like that as a as a part time business? That'll be interesting. I have one friend who's doing that. Guy I served with, great dude, great dude. And I think he bought some uh, some of the higher end Dylan machines to do it. And I'll it'd be interesting to see how it goes or if. You know he throws up his hands in a few years i've have known people who are in the bullet casting business and that's a that's a tough business too uh you you know the quality of your equipment and the the capacity of your equipment directs directly impacts the uh, amount of labor you put into it so um, that's a tough business but that'd be a great business to be in now a missouri bullet company is still I think they're still 10 weeks behind 10 to 12 weeks so uh you know that's that's it another if you could turn out coated uh powder coated bullets you know that's a even if you just get a steady stream of those things going you know you're going to be great you're going to be doing doing very very well those are great little part-time businesses the only the only real fly in the ointment is there's two things that that you know small producers really cannot make one is primers and the other is powder 
and uh, as long as we have good people like Hodgden out there there if you have a choice I always buy Hodgden products because I tell you what I, I happen to have met them personally and they are the best people and they unlike the guy whining on the video they love getting their product into the hands of the shooters for a fair price they're not out there price gouging you know you pay the same for a pound of Hodgden powder today that you paid a year ago or two years ago you know there's always gonna be a little inflation but you know you pay basically the same uh, watch that the retailers not gouging you but you know it is powder is one of the cheap components of hand loading of a hand load I uh, used to be primers were nothing used to be primers were a penny a piece I used to be able to make and I think I've told this before by casting my own bullets I used to be able to turn out a 38 special hand load for 3.5 cents a piece yeah 3.5 cents a piece because the primer was a penny and the powder was was um, you know about two cents and, and or two and a half cents and the um, the bullets I would scrounge and those days all wheel weights were made out of lead so I would scrounge those and then I would uh, melt them down and and pour them into ingots and then use that that lead straight wheel weight lead to cast bullets with that's that can go a long way that can go a long way 100 100 rounds 350 three dollars and fifty cents Think about a fifty cent th buck seventy. What is that? Buck seventy, buck seventy five, for um, yeah, buck seventy five for fifty rounds. Yeah, think if you could go into a store and buy fifty rounds for a buck seventy five. How cool that would be. Anyway, so what? That's what I think of the custom load hand loading business. Good deal. Okay, th this one I've I think I've answered this one before, but. Here's our last question. And if you had to equip a small nation's armory, army, not armory, army, if you had to equip a small nation's army, how would you do it? And I think this this kind of came, I think somebody had watched, I think they, they field this on in-range TV Q&A or Forgotten Weapons Q&A, something like that. They get that question every once in a while. And I think I've already kind of talked about that. First thing I would do, is let's say I'm in a small country somewhere and I basically you know and this has happened uh, when the Baltic republics separated from the Soviet Union it's like hey we got our own country now but we don't have any weapons we don't have an army we don't have anything so they actually would uh, had to build all this from scratch you know with with a country that's been established for a while hey they usually have their own way of doing things they've established they've got you know the schools that train their their military people from their officers down to their enlisted and they've got they've already got an armory or they have some sort of weapons procurement system but a lot of these countries that all of a sudden were cut loose from the soviet union hey they had nothing unless unless somebody left a warehouse full of equipment they they basically didn't have diddly so the the easy way is to look at that as a model or look at some of the other so if you're in a small country and you're anywhere in the world you can plop it anywhere you want in the world how would you start you know you've, you've just gotten independence and you don't have anything well I would say that the probably the best thing to do is figure out who your allies are 
and see if any of them can equip you even with older equipment you know they're, they're gonna somebody is going to to do that the model for that would be Latvia we gave them a bunch of m14s we said hey Latvian army you don't have any any rifles so we'll give you an m14 we'll give you m14s and uh, I, we actually had to get them back at the beginning of the war on terror <laughs> because we needed them but uh, yeah that's a that's a story that I wish Mark Felton or somebody would uh, we kind of go into how the the Latvian m14s came back into US custody at least some of them did anyway so I, I would do that and uh, I would say before I worried about weapons I would worry more about caliber and then I would build an ammo factory and I would produce my own ammo because I could number one I can sell it to other people you know if I produce decent quality ammo I can sell it to others and uh, I it kind of means that I'm kind of independent I don't have to rely on somebody else for my ammo so I would probably produce I don't know you know let's just say nine millimeter and five five six I produce those two things and I would adopt a squad automatic weapon in five five six rifles in five five six and a nine millimeter handgun and maybe a nine millimeter submachine gun and uh, equip everybody from my army to my police to my navy my air force there would be one thing um you know and and i could i could either set up a factory to produce these things the ones i think i would need the most handguns i'd probably just buy off the open market go to glock hey i need three thousand you know glock 17s probably buy those set up maybe a factory because they're not that hard to make of my own m4s and you know kind of go from there so that's kind of what i would do uh if i if i wanted to use 762 by 39 i think i would buy some of the ak's that are out on the market buy those and then maybe have a factory that produces an ak but that, that's kind of how i would do it it would, be, it would be you know a very interesting thing to do but i think nowadays everything is so standardized and the global market is such that you know you can you can kind of buy what you need and you know, I, one of the better models, a really good model to look at are South American countries who basically said, hey, we're going to buy 10,000 or 30,000 of these from Mauser. And so they buy those. And then all of a sudden, okay, 25 years later, they're buying another 10,000 from somewhere else. Maybe a different model Mauser. But hey, guess what? It's still a good, still a good gun. You still have a few of the old ones that are that are in service. And now you've got you know the replacements for the ones that have uh, gone away are now you know a newer model so you could do that and I did the same thing with handguns and then you know do some licensed production as as uh, that all works out and you know there you are you know you've got some you've got some sweet stuff uh, going on a lot of times if you do licensed production uh, you can't sell you can't sell and compete with the person you licensed it from it's only for your own use that's where I would build the ammo factory because no one's going to say, well, you know, your nine millimeter ammo, you can't sell that because it's competing with us. I would say, hey, forget it. This is this is our indigenous product and and we're selling that and five, five, six and everything else. A lot of countries, I think, have done that. Uh, you know, remember the South African five, five, six that was on the market 15, 
maybe 20 years ago you know all the different countries that have uh, released surplus ammo so um, you know a lot of countries made their own ammo I think what was the latest 762 NATO was that Malaysian yeah it was Malaysian so obviously they had a factory so you know that's it's a pretty pretty basic uh, calculus um, on how to do all that and a lot of these countries are doing it ones that were just formerly just rather than buy a shipload of ammo they they now have the industrial capacity to have their own factory and just kind of crank it out and uh, meet their needs and, and probably export some wish they'd export some to us because uh, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be sweet to have a whole bunch of 762 NATO and 556 surplus just hit the market right now yeah that would be that would be very sweet also a lot of uh, a lot of nine mil that would be yeah those three calibers hit the market right now surplus that'd be great 762 by 39 you know all those that'd be great then our our domestic producers could actually make the sporting ammo uh, you know one of the tragedies of all this is one of my friends uh, seven millimeter Remington Magnum can't find it anywhere he's down to like nine rounds right before deer season he wants to you know it's like well if i spend three rounds and confirm my zero uh, then i'll have six rounds left for deer season you know that's that's intolerable that is just intolerable so santa if you're out there listening bring people some bullet casting equipment bullet loading equipment and uh also some primer making equipment so santa you gotta you got a big uh a big some big orders to fill this year but anyway that's it for the 90th edition of old school guns and if you have any comments or questions you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com and at podbean which is our our carrier for our podcast so you can always leave a comment there and we'll get to it or a question there but anyway uh, this is Old School Guns, out.